Hi, everyone. Welcome to the 12th episode of the Forensic Anthropology Companion Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kenny Harris. It's good to be back after an extended break. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Heather Edgar. I'm Heather Edgar. I'm a forensic anthropologist for the state of New Mexico and a professor of anthropology at the University of New Mexico. I'm a bioarchaeologist by training, but I've also done a lot of work in human biology and forensic anthropology. And Dr. Steve Owsley. Hi, I'm Steve Owsley, and I am a biological anthropologist with a lot of interest in statistical approaches to human variation and forensic anthropology in general. To discuss their paper, Testing the Homogeneity of White, Dental Morphology, and Americans and Australians of European Descent. So let's get right to it. Could you please give a brief overview of the paper and three main takeaways? So the goal of our paper was to explicitly look for population structure in a group that is generally not examined for population variation. And that group is contemporary people that are labeled white by their communities and by anthropologists. We had three main takeaway points. First point is a really obvious one, which is white, that group white is not homogeneous. And second, that failing to investigate variation within this group white contributes to the perception that white is normal, while other samples that are we investigate on a regular basis are other. And then finally, we would say that forensic anthropologists must use their anthropological expertise to determine what groups are that should be studied and what groups are being studied and to describe appropriate reference samples and that these samples are time and space specific. And related to that is that typically what people might do is you wanted to understand variation, you might pull groups under a certain heading, racial group, social group, whatever. So you might get whites, for instance, oh, we have whites from Tennessee, New York, Australia, they're all modern, 20th century, okay. And I think what the paper really shows is that you should not make that assumption. You always test for differences among them, because one of the consequences of that is you might have three different groups, like in this case that have different frequencies or different traits. If you pull them all together, you have now have this agglomeration that's actually different from all three, and you'll get vastly different conclusions when you work with that kind of data without looking for differences in the different groups that you're trying to throw together. I absolutely love that. The polling thing, that's what gets me to in particular, is like it's so easy to justify polling for sample sizes, right? Uh, and if you're, as long as you're like, oh, it's all European derived, so white. And that's just kind of been the understanding. How do you each think that it's taken so long to do this type of epistemological kind of foundational research into what it is that we know? Or why have we just so readily accepted that white people are white people without looking into it? Because we live in a, at least in the US, we live in a white dominated society and scientists are part of their society. And we don't understand that the anthropological approach to other, it should be applied to all groups, right? The better example is Hispanic. 
All right. So because we've done this a lot, people are like, they have some understanding that Hispanic people around the country represent different migration patterns and that the biological and phenotypic characteristics that are associated with this term Hispanic vary from place to place. And so they've taken the time to look and say, hey, shockingly, there's population variation that's structured. These researchers that are doing this are white. And perhaps that is part of the reason. But I actually just want to cut ourselves a little bit of slack and say, we're really bad at investigating intergroup variation in any group. We're we're really bad at it. A sample comes to exist that exists in a museum or wherever it is. That sample exists. We ask the curator, hey, what is the sample? The curator tells us what the sample is. And if it's called white in one place and it's called white in another place, well, then I guess it's just the same sample. And we're really bad at taking the time to ask, well, what do you mean by that group? And how did the community investigate that? And we're also really bad at reading history. And those are all reasons that we're late coming to the ballgame. I, th- I would like to tack on to that too. We've, I think, as a field investigated the problem or around the problem by calling it secular change amongst different institutional samples, right? So be like, oh, well, the difference between these whites and this one's has to be secular change or between this and UT has to be exclusively secular change without considering, well, maybe there's just variation in what we're describing as white and maybe Maybe that's not a strong enough or high fidelity enough term to encapsulate that variation. Right, Mike. So what you're saying is you have to consider time and place. And I think that's certainly what we demonstrated here. We shouldn't be too surprised by our results because when we've looked at least at craniometrics and different regional groups, East Asians, Europeans, Africans, we have seen a lot of intergroup variation within those regions that are, that are often pooled. And maybe Heather can confirm that, you know, with, with European samples, I know you've looked at a lot of dental data, but I think the primary emphasis is on biodistance or relationships among them, not necessarily saying, oh, geez, these are all significantly different. Yeah, I mean, so biodistance studies in any part of the world, which is what dental morphology has traditionally been used for, first of all, they rely on it the idea that secular change, at least as related to environment, when, you know, which is what I think about as the cause of secular change, is not important in dental morphological variation. That the dental morphological variation reflects mutation and genetic drift not any environmental effect. And then, yeah, again, Steve's right. In general, people who are doing dental morphology are looking at biodistance. And in those cases, they really are asking a little bit about population variation. So for example, you might say, I'm going to use dental morphology and I'm going to study these five groups in Poland. Those groups might vary across time or across space in Poland, or they might come from different cemeteries or whatever. They could be really, really specific, small differences. And so yeah, they are looking for pattern population difference within Poland from a forensic perspective. I don't think we would ever look. I mean, if you're Polish, maybe you would. But, you know, Americans looking at, we would never be like, okay, well, you know, who in this group is from this cemetery in Poland? Is that something we should be asking? Well, I mean, I think our, our culture must dictate what questions we ask. Right. So from a forensic perspective in the United States, whether somebody's ancestors are buried at this particular cemetery in Poland, that's not important. Right. It's not that 
the term white has no meaning in our community. The term white has a ton of meaning. It's defining in a lot of ways in our community. So I'm not saying that we need to pull apart and like not describe people as white, but what we are saying is, first of all, you need to treat white like any other group and understand it and also understand that there's variation within that group. And that, as Steve pointed out, mixing groups and, you know, not, you might end up with a reflection of no particular group. Well, the, the context here is in forensic identification, I think. That's what uh, we're, that's the main uh, point we're trying to make. And that's kind of why we use these different methods to get at this intergroup variation within the heading of white, you know, groups that would be labeled white. So uh, I think that's the primary focus here is forensic identification because the situation now is different, but it has to be very different. From, for instance, I can remember 20 years ago, the average paper you'd see in Journal of Forensic Science or other ones would be, oh, look at this. Here are differences between whites and blacks in this bone or that bone or in the cranium, something like that. And the problem was, like, for instance, if, if you've got a forensic application, here's, here's a really good example of not paying attention to time as well, is that there is a paper by Isjohn, a chapter in, in the book by Isjohn, that talked about how to get a essentially ancestry and sex estimation using the postcrania. And back then, this was early, early 90s, he based all of his data on the cherry collection. He went there, collected lots of data. And that was before we had an appreciation of secular changes in those groups in American whites and blacks. And one of my earliest papers was just to look and I just said, well, let's take this, these functions that this John proposed and let's apply them to modern Americans. And it essentially classified 90% of the entire sample as black Americans because there's been such changes in the femur and the tibia over time. And so, you know, that is Yet another level of kind of disconnect between these groups that we should be interested in when we're analyzing modern forensic cases. I think it's important to remember the goal here, right? The goal of the biological profile is to improve the likelihood that a person will be identified, right? So let's start from that. That's like the first principle. All right, so what do we need to do that? And this paper specifically deals with population affinity or ancestry, as it's more commonly called right now. And we need to, I think, be really conscious of what our reference samples are in making that comparison. Because any estimate we make, its core is based in the reference samples that we choose. And so we need to describe our reference samples well. That's part of like the anthropological component of understanding who it is that we're looking at. And we need to use the appropriate reference samples in our time and place. So for example, you in Hawaii, Mike, if you were like working on a case from Hawaii, your reference samples whether they be for white, black, Asian, any culturally recognized group, there would probably be incomplete overlap between the reference samples that would be appropriate for me in New Mexico. Heather pointed out earlier the the subtle difference you used population fitting ancestry and noticeably in the keywords ancestry is not there but population affinity is. I too believe that it should be population affinity, but I wanted to get both your takes on what should we be using and why. Go ahead, Steve. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll go first. Okay. I'll probably set myself up here, but 
I mean, I think when you say population affinity, what are you basing that on? I mean, if you're using this in the statistical analysis, well, it's based on a sample, right? So then it's, to, to me, you're saying, is this individual, you know, to which group is this individual most similar? It's based on a sample. That sample then has a certain kind of designator. And I think you're kind of getting at basically ancestry, background, ethnicity, it's kind of another kind of label. So it's, I think they're more or less the same thing. But when you say affinity, I think it's recognized and you talk about similarity to certain groups. But the other thing to keep in mind, and I think a lot of people forget this, is that we're, we work with probabilities. It's not like 40 years ago when the forensic expert would kind of, you know, smell, smell the remains and say, oh yes, this is a whatever, choose your label. This is where we'd say, okay, we, well, these remains, we think, you know, 90, 90% probability it's male, 10% it's female. Well, okay, guess what? 10% of the time you will be wrong. You're just about guaranteed it. And people seem to forget that where they think it, that 90% means absolute certainty. And of, and of course we understand that people want certainty. We want to know, okay, what are these remains? But a lot of times it has to be a probabilistic answer based on essentially affinity, similarity, which I think are what affinity is getting at. But that's my understanding of it. So to be clear, you are on team ancestry. Or affinity. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. Okay. But I don't think we should use, I certainly don't think we should use words that are charged that bring out a you know, bad reaction in people. I am definitely team population affinity. I think affinity for all the statistical reasons that Steve just mentioned. And then as you pointed out, the sample might represent a biogeographic group, or it might represent an ethnicity or a nationality. There's a lot of Fortis samples that are a nationality, those kinds of things. That's not a bad thing. The fact that the groups are different levels of variation is fine because those are we hope, you know, groups that culturally are relevant. That's the point is that we want the group to be culturally relevant. And so population is a generic term that covers all of those different levels of recognized patterns of taxonomy or folk taxonomy. So that's why I'm a fan of population affinity. Now I will say I like the term bioaffinity and as like if I had my total choice of, and the reason is because it's a word that is made up and doesn't have pre-existing associations you know, because we could argue, well, what's population, right? We could have that argument now, too, if we'd like. So I liked kind of the idea of making up a word and starting from scratch to mean exactly what we want it to mean. But population affinity is uh, what I think the ASB standard is going to be. And I think it's I'm a big fan of it. I, I agree. I think you can estimate ancestry, but that is separate from estimating population affinity. To me, ancestry has this shared genetic lineage that's going to go down to continental level groups, the haplogroup, 23andMe type of stuff, right? Like that's the implied. And I think even the definition of ancestry says the shared lineage, population history, all that stuff, where population affinity is specific to time and place, right? It is that population in time and their affinity within and amongst each other in that space. So I think that is what we are estimating and not ancestry. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I feel like it can be ancestry. It can be any other, like it, it literally could be Joe around the corner and his family, right? And so let's be as, I guess, as generic as we can with that bit of it. 
Now let's get to question two. <laughs> Sorry, I go off on tangents sometimes. Was there anything you thought that was surprising about your results? In my predicting of what I thought we would find, I did not necessarily expect that the Tennessee group was going to jump out the way that it did. I actually thought the New York group was going to be the most different just because of the crazy, crazy migration history of New York City. And so that was my expectation. So the fact that it was the Tennessee group that stuck out like a sore thumb was surprising to me. Yes, the same thing, that they were so different. It, I was very surprised. Australians, I think, in the Tennessee group were so different from each other and different from the other white groups. Why is Tennessee so strange? Yeah, so founder effect is a possibility. Um, and we discuss a little bit in the paper that a high proportion of people in Tennessee report English ancestry. So that's a possibility. And the other is gene flow from other groups that are not included here. Could you briefly and broadly discuss the effect nomenclature has on the estimates we make as part of the biological profile? Yeah, so I'll take this one first, if you don't mind, Steve. So nomenclature affects the relevance of the reference sample constitution. And that is important in two ways. If you are using a sample that somebody else has collected, then you need to know what the nomenclature that they have used is and who is the group that they included in that sample development. Another approach is to develop your own sample. I've done that a whole lot. So for example, one of the ways that I've done this is I have worked a bunch in these orthodontic collections. And the reason is they're super contemporary right? I have people born in the 21st century, which blows me away, right? That's in my sample. But also I can talk to members of that individual's community directly. And usually what my method has been is to go and talk to the treating orthodontists and say, tell me what groups are in your practice. You know, what are the groups that are in your practice? And can you put these samples in the different groups for me? so that I then can collect data that is appropriate to that time and that specific location. So like when I went to NYU and worked at the orthodontic program there, I said, you know, to the orthodontist, who do you have? What's your patient pool? And they actually sat in a group and had a discussion about what were the groups that they identified and then put their patients in that, those groups. And it even included, for them, they had discussions about whether Turkey was part of the Middle East. You know, that, that was a really interesting anthropological experience to watch. So that was, that's what I mean when I talk about how nomenclature should set things up, is that you, you need to understand, like, what is being used in the community. And that community could be New York City, or that community could be the United States, or that community could be, you know, Texas, you know, like whatever. What's your area of interest? And then how do the people there think about it? And that's how I think we can best develop samples. There's one caveat I want to put onto this is that there's always a balance between local specificity and regional and national relevance. So if we're developing a tool, perhaps it doesn't, you know, make sense that it works in a four block area in downtown Albuquerque, right? So um, we need to be cognizant of that and understand, all right, you know, and it's this is testable and knowable is how big a region 
does my sample make sense for? Is it uh -huh. just that four block region? Is it just Albuquerque? Is it just New Mexico? Is it just the Southwest? Is it the West? Is it the country? So that's where I think it's a combination of sample taking and nomenclature that, that is going to determine the value of any particular reference group. You know, the labels that we use kind of define who we include, and they, they can be a little bit misleading. So, for instance, Hispanic includes a lot of different peoples. And, for instance, in Fordisk, we have a sample labeled Hispanic, and it is people from the Southwest. So it's, we were, you know, debating, should we call this Southwest? In the Southwest United States, uh, a lot of border crossers, a lot of Mexicans, but also some other groups too. And the question was, should we call it Southwest? We think we explained it in the help file that it, there are people that come from there, but we're, we're actually going to be more specific in the next and upcoming version of Fordisk where we have enough. Now we can say, okay, these are Mexicans, we might have enough for some Guatemalans and some other nationalities that have, you know, crossed in the United States. And that there, those are groups that are especially relevant for the United States forensic cases as well. Yeah. I would just say that all those groups that you mentioned, like people from Mexico, people from Guatemala and all that, they are not considered Hispanic in New Mexico, right? The, so, <laughs> which is a state that right. is about 48 and a half percent Hispanic. It's the highest percentage in the nation. And all of those people would be considered Latin American, or in the case of Mexico, they'd probably be called Mexican. They would not mm. be considered Hispanic at all. That's interesting. Well, and that's a that's a good lead into my next question about the finding from Hunley et al. that New Mexicans of Spanish-speaking descent recognize at least seven distinct groups among individuals. They I do. thought that was fascinating. How do you... Do you know how they make this distinction visual? Is it, it's got to be visually, it's got to be language based, probably. I have no idea. I was just interested. And if they can recognize seven within groups, should we be using that kind of back to like, are we taking this emic perspective? What, how do the groups here recognize? And if this is how they're recognizing, wouldn't that be more relevant to an identification effort to be able to give them that level of fidelity? Like, oh, it's this language speaking group or whatever, you know? Yeah, I don't want to get too much in the weeds on this because like this is research that I spent many years working on and, and I wouldn't call myself done with it yet. So we asked people who we called New Mexicans of Spanish-speaking descent. What are the groups in New Mexico? What group are you? What group is your group most similar to and why? What group is your group most different from and why? And so that's how we approach those kinds of questions. And honestly, I, I cannot yet answer to you how people know because we haven't done those analyses yet. We do have quite a bit of data both from survey, but also from phenotypic analyses to address that question, but we don't know it yet. What we do know is that there is population structure as far as genetic variation and also skin color variation amongst the groups. So people who call themselves Spanish, which is one of the seven groups, are on average 75% European, and people who call themselves Mexican-American are on average 65% European. Now, we can have a really interesting discussion about whether that is important, it's statistically significant, but whether it's you know important in other ways 
is another good question. So this is what we have found is that, yeah, there are seven different descriptors. I think if we were to ask this question again, we might find a slightly different collection of descriptors. We found that there are statistical differences between some of these descriptors. So there's a, there are important differences in between Spanish and Mexican and Mexican-American. As we talked about in the paper, there's actually uh, among the Office of Medical Investigator sample an eight-year difference in age of death between those groups. That's a big deal, right? That's a huge consequence. So there is real difference, but across the seven, subtlety happens and there's a loss of fidelity. So I would say if we here in New Mexico could say somebody was Spanish and somebody was Mexican-American, then yes, it would be of benefit and help identify a missing person. But to say that someone was Nuevo Mexicano or Chicano or something like that, those kinds of groups that are a little more complex in their histories and their makeup might not be helpful. So how do we inspire people to be more thoughtful about what it is they're researching or how they're thinking about kind of the synthesis of what they're doing in a practical application sense? That's a great question. Uh, do you want me to take this one? <laughs> I don't have a good answer <laughs> how to inspire people. <laughs> I might have a little bit of an answer for you. As I said, I'm trained as a bioarchaeologist, right? So that means I'm bringing cultural information and biological anthropology together in core. And I work in a very explicitly biocultural framework. I think that perhaps, and maybe this is going to give you some light at the end of the tunnel kind of thoughts, is if we train new students so that they aren't just exposed to, okay, this is how you measure a femur, and this is the statistic you use, and this is how you develop a method, and this is how you test a method, and this is how you apply a method. If we train students so that they learn things from human biology, they learn things, oh my gosh, maybe from cultural anthropology or archaeology, if we broaden the training in general then I think it is possible to develop students and a whole discipline that approaches forensic anthropology from biocultural perspective. This is what I do at my university. I also make clear to students that I don't care if they're working in forensics or bioarchaeology or human biology. You can work with living people in my lab. You know, I don't care. It's the question that matters, not what the kind of data is. You know, those are, I think, ways that that we can inspire people. And, and to add to that, I think more places are. I feel like there is not just my university, but other universities are training students with a return to implicitly biocultural perspectives. And when I say return, actually, that's not exactly accurate because it's never been true in forensics, really, that that's been core. But yeah, bringing in a, a core, explicitly biocultural perspective is one that allows for science that's informed by anthropology. So be of good spirit and good cheer. Yeah, I like that. Well, and I think uh, like you pointed out the, the crossing domains as we get so pigeonholed into thinking that anthropology is like the one thing that's going to answer all the questions where anthropology has the same types of questions that other fields also have just with different labels, right? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, they've made yeah really cool ways to think about those problems. And now more than ever, like data scientists and straight up statisticians are being folded in as the, the GUI world is exploding. Thanks, Steve, for starting that revolution. <laughs> 
He's a revolutionary. Well, he speaking is. of uh, revolutionary, I think there are some examples of the new direction where we go to. And I think it's emphasizing now the fact that uh, the graduates of these of graduate programs here in anthropology need to be not just practitioners, but scientists. Because what's typically happened is, you know, you learn a method. Okay, I know how to do aging or quote unquote, estimating age, whatever, with the Sachi Brooks method. And so... I know how to do that now. Oh, here's a sample from an archaeological site. I'm going to do that. That's going to be my dissertation. All right. As opposed to looking into ways to improve, for instance, age estimation in that specific example. So, you know, that's the difference between being a, just a practitioner, in other words, regurgitating things and really thinking it's the critical thinking aspect here where you say, you know, why do we do it this way? And I think that's what you both said or less. Why are we doing it this way? Is there a better way? Are there different things we, we should look at? And as a matter of fact, one approach was by a certain Dr. Michael Kennehertz in a recent publication where he kind of did, took an open-ended question about human variation and he just said, all right, let's do this and explained every step along the way provided, then at the end, provided an appendix, the, the data and the code, so you could replicate everything he did. Now, that is fantastic on several levels. I'm amazed he got it published in the first place, but it's also fantastic because some students can just see it and do it. It doesn't matter what their, you know, advisor, if their advisor's into it or not, because a lot of Instructors are still, I mean, has just no wonder the students have some difficulties with statistics. They, a lot of instructors have difficulties with statistics. But if an instructor who's also trying to be a scientist and not just a regurgitator when he or she's teaching, if they can use that also in a, as an example and learn more about those kind of things by themselves and then teach it to students, reinforce that. But I think Dr. Michael Kennehertz has set a really good example there for how we can do studies. And in fact, that's a trend in science in general is not just to publish things and do all that and say, these are my conclusions, but also publishing the, the source data and sources for additional data and the methods and the code that they used to come to those conclusions. Well, thank you. That's very sweet. You didn't have to do that. I will leave it in for my ego's sake. <laughs> <laughs> As you uh, should. And I think to Steve's point is a lot of us are, well, imposter syndrome one is real, but we don't understand the source material, what we're describing to a degree in which we can talk about it confidently. So we hide behind these very technical ways of phrasing, I think. So mm -hmm. I wanted to, I thought it was more challenging to write a more conversational type of paper in which you describe exactly what you're doing and why you're doing it. Like you're just talking to someone that has no understanding of it. Because I've come to realize that most people don't think about their statistics in a general kind of way in like a generic kind of what is this made believe thing, right? Because we're working in so many different dimensions and it's doing all these different things to variables. What is it that we're comparing it to? And what does that mean to me in the end result? This is where affinity comes in because you would say, well, for instance, in the case of Fortis and the Laotian male, the affinity is to a sample of Vietnamese males. But it's really how you interpret that. So there's that extra kind of step you need to make. You don't just 
run everything through and then just say Vietnamese male, because as we know, then law enforcement will look explicitly for a Vietnamese male. And Fordisk will, in a way, as Richard Jance always says, Fordisk is never wrong. It will always tell you the group that the individual is closest to, but it's how you interpret that. And in this case, you know, we would, we should say, okay, it's, we know where the location is. So I think the point we make is, okay, Southeast Asia, maybe check against the Howells groups to see if it's also similar to the Philippines, something like that. And Dr. Michael Kinnahert, before, when he was just a BA, a master's student at Mercyhurst did a, did a fantastic poster on that. And I think based on that, and this sample comes from, from a village that is culturally Khmer, in other words, Cambodian, but it's the border that has shifted over the last hundred years or so between Cambodia and Vietnam. So it's a much more complicated question as far as, you know, what label do we give? You could call it Vietnamese, but actually I think we're going to change that and call it a Khmer sample. And then people will start, that will also get people thinking a little bit more about, oh, Khmer, huh? And because, because of the nature of that sample, and that's an example maybe of being it more specific, but also a more appropriate label as we, we talked about labels earlier. I think that's a really interesting and cool choice about changing the group as it's described in Fordisk. I think that makes sense and really reflects this whole conversation we're having about the meaning of labels, you know, and how that group may represent Vietnamese or not, right? And so putting in the important information about who they really are makes a lot of sense. I don't, like, then there's this practical question, all right, because which we leave open, cheating in the paper is like, well, what would you do kind of a thing, and then don't provide an answer. Here's the question is like, we have somebody who is listed as Vietnamese, but, you know, is and we happen to know through secret means that they're Laotian, but here in New Mexico, which is where the person's found, that would be just a tiny amount of population and nobody's going to know the dang difference anyway. And so I think Asian American would be it, like when I was going to, if I was really going to write this case report. I would use the descriptor Asian American. Actually, I, I take it back. I would use the descriptor Asian or Asian American because we none of the samples that we are in Fortis are Asian American, right? So saying that right. it's an Asian American is just not true. I haven't found that affinity at all. <laughs> so I would say Asian or Asian American. That would be what would be the highlight. And then there would be a discussion of that in the report. That's the terminology I would use. Hmm. Yeah, I the more I think about it, I think I would like to take both an an ancestry the way that I, I think about ancestry and population affinity approach and give something like Southeast Asian descent, right? Using something if you could use Hal's, you had some sort of worldwide coverage and you could just make a generic sample that goes to some regional location at some level. And then you can include given the cultural context, right? Like, all right, I know I'm in Albuquerque. So the Southeast Asian groups here to include Laotians, Vietnamese, Filipino, that kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. So use both of those so that you give, you can give them something that might be more useful, but you're, it's, a caveat, right? It's not what you're actually saying. It's not what you're hanging your hat on as your final thing. That is much broader. Mm -hmm. And that's actually, that's the best way I think to work with anthropological data is to set off something, you know, something 
broadly regional and then get down specific and have kind of having that built into your data uh, helps you discover you know this this pattern variation as opposed to having to then do it after the fact uh, when you find out you've got some odd clustering of data or something the contextualization of our knowledge and leveraging that against what it is that we're doing i think is important to keep in mind could you briefly describe the advantage of using the robust estimator of mean grade differences over something like non-metric Mahalanobis distance or the mean measure of divergence? I can, as somebody who has used all three methods. So the non-metric Mahalanobis or, or pseudo-Mahalanobis, as I grew up calling it, has in the past been my favorite statistic, even though it is kind of a hell to actually calculate. It was the core statistic of my dissertation, and I used SAS to calculate it, so it was before, you know, pre-R, and it was just a miserable experience. So that, But that's not a reason to not use the, that statistic. There are two main benefits of RED, or, or robust estimator of mean grade difference, over MMD and Mahalanobis, or pseudo-Mahalanobis. The first is that it uses non-dichotomized data. So you can include, or it gives you the option to use non-dichotomized data is what I should say, because you can use dichotomized data if you want, but it allows you to retain subtleties of data difference. Now, there's a cost and benefit to that. The cost is that if you have a lot of inter or intra-observer error, these different categories you know, instead of having zero and one, you have, say, zero to eight. If there's a lot of error from category to category, then you have added a lot of error to your statistic. However, if there is not a lot of error in from category to category, and, and preferably maybe all the data is collected by one person or something like that, then you can retain a lot of subtlety that we know exists in dental morphology, but have not been able to study it very well because we've been forced to use the dichotomized data in a lot of statistics. And there's a lot of other people like Andre Cusina and stuff like that have come up with other methods to, instead of having just zero and one, maybe have zero, one, and two, you know, those kinds of things. But this allows you to keep the full suite of variation. The other big benefit of RED is that it allows missing data in the calculations. Now, we didn't do that in this paper because we also use other statistics and we use the same set of data on all the analyses. But that ability to conclude individuals that have missing data can increase your sample size a lot. And I think it's yet to be seen where the line is of how much missing data is before you have conclusions that don't make any sense or have been able to add a lot more diversity to your samples. So it's a new statistic. It's only been around, I, I only know like a couple of other papers that have applied it. So it's yet to be seen whether that's going to be a good thing or a bad thing. But for me, that's why I wanted to use it in this paper was for those two reasons. One follow-up, do the variables have to be ordered if you break it out? No, actually it can, it can be a categorical like, anything. It works with like any kind of data, basically. And 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 it ex like the assumptions that are in the statistic do not assume ordinality. Perfect. I'm gonna look into this. I love it. Yeah. Uh, Steve, do you have anything anything else about this? This uh, statistic red? No, I do not. <laughs> I have it's, no comment. The, I want I want you to take a notice that this is a statistical question that I could answer that Steve Aslan could not. <laughs> Oh my God, that's the cold open to the podcast right there. <laughs> <laughs> it will never, ever happen again. C congratulations, Heather. <laughs> the appropriate response is everyone gets one. <laughs> <laughs>
it's like my 15 minutes. <laughs> it's interesting how substantially the Japanese samples from everything else. Are there any variables in particular or suite of variables that are uh, driving that? That's a very good. Do, can I take this, Heather? That is your question, Steve. Okay, that's a very good question because especially with the ordinal data, non-metric data, binary data, putting them all together, it's it's really hard to get at variable importance using a lot of different methods. But one of the easiest ways is to look at the trait frequencies, which we publish in the paper. And it looks like it's double shoveling that distinguishes the Japanese from everyone else. And for the Australians and the Tennessee samples, it looks like it's the Carabelli's frequencies, the N2 uh, presence of Carabelli's expressed. For the Tennessee sample, they also have uh, more expression of the maxillary labial curvature on I1. Just And that's just look at the table. Now, the tricky thing is with machine learning methods, and we use one of those, uh, you can get measures of variable importance, but they're not perfect. And sometimes different methods give you different answers. I know at least one example where it said certain variables were important, and I just, what I know about the data, I've got to disagree. I don't think it's correct. I think it's misleading. And that's kind of the problem with, with machine learning is a lot of times it'll classify at very high accuracy, but it's very dense. You don't understand why or how, but as a matter of fact, it's only very recently that they're talking about explainable machine learning. And that's especially important for neural networks because neural networks are just extremely dense and they use a lot of nonlinear manipulation and all kinds of things that will make your head explode if you try to understand all of it. But they're working to improve that. And with machine learning methods, especially neural networks, you have to look out for overfitting. So this isn't about the math, but what Steve was saying as far as the traits that are important to discern Tennessee and to and Australia being more labial curvature and more Carabelli's cusp helps us to think about why that population might be different, right? So we posited two different reasons why that population might be different. One might be like kind of a founder effect from England, and the other one might be admixture from an outside group that isn't considered. Those two characteristics lean towards hypothesis A, that it's a founder effect from the UK. That's kind of cool. That is really cool. <laughs> well, and two, I think uh, that that's cool too, because I think we should be more descriptive or contextual about things as we're doing it, not in terms of like describing traits or morphology, but what that means or like, why is that important, right? If in craniometrics, just because I, I'm thinking about heads for some reason, probably looking at everyone's heads on the screen right now, <laughs> uh, is it not useful to be like, and in a general population, this person ha would have a much wider head than anybody else. You know, that's a descriptive thing that anybody could recognize like, oh yeah, that guy had a huge face. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And right. that adds utility to what we're doing. And we can say that because we are comparing it to everything we know and we can make statements mm. about this is unique to this person. And we should be focusing on that stuff too, I think. It's just harder to do with dental data because not everyone is familiar with staring your teeth. Yeah, so shoveling or, or like whatever, most dental characteristics wouldn't, but some things like, you know, a big diastema right in the middle of yeah. the face, you know, that's that stands too. out. Yeah. Or or rotated teeth or something mm -hmm. like that, people do notice. And even if they're not conscious, like you could say, 
unique dentition is really kind of enough for people to get it. You don't have to say, you know, oh, they were missing their lateral incisor. Right. Yeah. Should be like, what are like their mid teeth? What are they like turned a little bit? And they don't have to know that's incisal winging, right? Yeah. Like like their front teeth were turned. Oh yeah, a little bit. Yeah, like they were turned in a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Those kinds of individualizing characteristics. Were there any traits in particular that were most variable among samples? Or I guess, are there any hyper-variable traits? Or should we just go to the appendix? I think there were. I think we mentioned one was the the Japanese uh, sample seemed to have really high variation, which was much higher than the other groups. Now, that's, of course, when you put them all together. And the other caveat, we've looked at these individual you know, univariate frequencies, but the other caveat here is how they interact with each other. So that's another thing that's it's hard to get a get a handle on at least so far with with things I've seen. I really enjoy this type of article looking into what it is that we think that we know and learning something new along the way. Do either of you see any way that this type of reflexive research could be used in other aspects of our field? Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, this has been my research approach since my dissertation. Before that, I didn't, I didn't think deeply, but like with the dissertation, I started to think about this. And I, I've told this story a lot of times, so I'm going to keep it brief. But between my master's and my PhD, I took three years off and I worked at Friedman Cemetery in Dallas, Texas. It was an African-American cemetery that was being excavated for the widening of the freeway. One of the things I began to think about at that time was how the community that was burying people knew who to put in what cemetery. So you have a white cemetery and you have a black cemetery. There was also a Jewish cemetery and some other cemeteries, right? Mm -hmm. And there was, in my mind, some kind of community agreement about who went in the white cemetery and who went in the black cemetery. And this really conflicted with my learning in anthropology about whether race was a real thing or not. Being taught race was not real, but yet somehow I could totally estimate it or actually determine it would be the word I would have learned then from a skeleton. So how do these ideas all come together? And so I began to think about, like, what was that community thinking? And then the next thing I thought was, well, does that, did that community in Dallas in, it was 19, excuse me, 1867 and 1907 is when that cemetery was in use. Like, so they had a a set of biology that they associated with the term that they used that it was the equivalent of black at the time. So they had an idea of what it meant to be black. Was that the same as what we used? Mm -hmm. Um, What about earlier? You know, what about earlier during colonial period or something like that? Was that the same? So that was really like the change in, you know, we were talking earlier about how you become synthetic. And that was like a a huge eye-opening moment for me is to think about things like what is the meaning of black across time? And then for my dissertation, I, I attempted to answer that question using people's teeth, which is kind of a crazy thing to do, but also collected all the same data to answer what does it mean to be white across time? And that's different than what this project is. But, you know, all of that that I just described is a weird part of bioarchaeology, right? It's not about health directly. It's not about health. So it's not about the health of populations in the past, but it's a bioarchaeological question. It just happened to be that because I had contemporary samples, I could also use it to develop a forensic method uh, for estimating population affinity, which wasn't what I called it at the time. I think I called it race at the time. I'm going to estimate race. So you did. I cite that all the time at work. Yeah, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, 
you know, ideas change over time, right? So it's so I find this what we're just we're talking about this reflexive view of building our ideas based on what's happening in community, whether that community is today or we learn about it from historical records or we learn about it in archaeological records. Those are concepts that are common in bioarchaeology. So I'm not inventing anything here. I'm just using what other people have done, George R. Melagos, etc in the past. There's no reason that in forensic anthropology we can't be doing that. I think that there's a movement in genetics to be doing this kind of research, right? Certainly in human biology. Maybe there's exceptions, like I, I think actually it is used in archaeology. Maybe a primatologist can't use this kind of reflective, reflexive stuff. I don't know. It's hard for me to imagine how they would, right? But it has wide application. I think it also can work in economics. Like you were talking earlier, let's think in anthropology, outside anthropology. It's not, a, it's a tool I'm using. It's not one I invented, right? And so that means it came from elsewhere. And actually, a lot of it does actually come from economics originally. I'm just curious, This do any tooth type change more frequently than others? I'm oh. thinking like the polar tooth type thing versus yeah, yeah. the diffusion model, where if you subscribe to those, the teeth that are furthest away should be most hyper-variable yeah. to yeah. Uh, more plastic. Yeah. Right? And then yeah. the polar teeth should be the more fixed evolutionarily. So I wonder are the ones that uh, retain the traits on polar teeth or not. Yeah, so obviously M3s change like so much that the data is so unstable, nobody ever even uses it in their Yeah, now they're disappearing from people's mouths, so. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, but that's a, you know, absence is a a trait that we've argued a lot that the the presence of absence is presence is kind of a a sticking point. Yeah, exactly, yeah. (laughs) But um, I would also say that the maxillary lateral incisor, in my personal experience, I haven't done it like a comparison of it compared to other teeth, but the maxillary lateral incisor is in some populations super variable, especially my experiences in Mexico. I really would like to move south and see if that continues to be true. But in Mexico, a pre-contact, the crazy variation, some of which are just like crazy and wacky and you'll see one tooth that looks like that in your life and that's it. But also like things that are described, they're rare in other populations, but studyable in Mexico. So things like interruption groove, which is a relatively standard trait to collect. But then there's something trying to remember, oh, mesial bending of the lateral incisor, which when the first time I looked at it, I was like, why is this incisor shaped like a J? And then Alfredo Coppa was the first person to describe it. He described it as Etruscan incisor, but then I found it in Maya and so did other people. So that doesn't work. But yeah, this kind of odd bent incisor. And then, you know, a lot of barrel shaping, a lot of absent, a lot of that tooth, just like, it it makes me so happy. That's my favorite tooth because um, sometimes, this is going to shock you, but sometimes collecting dental morphological data gets boring. And (laughs) you try digitizing teeth, if you think observing, it gets boring. Sorry, I could just talk forever about. I just teach a whole class about it, right? But but so when you see a, a tooth that's like that, that is so cool, you're gonna like I don't know, take pictures of it and send it to your friends. It's stuff like that. <laughs> is there anything about this paper that you think is important that might be missed by readers? I don't know if I have a good answer to that. Steve, do you have a good answer? Yes, I do have a good answer. Good. I don't think there's much they missed because. Dr. Heather Edgar did such a fantastic job of covering a lot of the issues. And, you know, the other thing I liked about it was 
this might be missed is that there was not an over hypothesizing. Heather doesn't know these things. I don't know these things. We, we said these changes, these differences could be due to this or that or that. And we really don't know. And we don't have to know because we were making a point. And, you know, part of that point is sometimes you discover these things and they, they don't make sense. So you can have a few suggestions, but you should still publish them because you don't have to have some grandiose conclusion and deal with big, broad questions all the time. I love that. And I think that you should be encouraged to publish and say things like, I am unsure why this is observed, nor do, nor can I think of an alternative explanation. Because then you open that up to a dialogue with the field, right? Like, this is what I've learned, and I this is all I got. I got nothing left. Someone else can now carry this torch. But I think, too, in the greater scheme of things, that means we need to be really good about data sharing and transparency and stuff. And right. anytime that I do anything now, it's always going to be the same thing. All of my code goes up. All of my data will go up every yeah. single time. Because I want people to take with it. Like if all if my legacy is going to be built on spreadsheets of numbers of things I've measured through time, then I don't want it to die on a hard drive. I want it to live and continue to be helpful into the future to keep asking and answering questions. So yeah, I, I would just like to toss that in there as well. I'm a fan of data sharing. If you were to start over, is there anything you would have done differently? I think I would have collected a little data from New Mexico whites to throw in. And that's about it. Steve, how about you? Anything that you can think looking back that you would have maybe wanted to try or do differently? No, uh, except maybe do, do a neural net analysis on that. You know, another machine learning method because the data, the data are, can't do discriminant function on that. They're just too non-normal. Sure. Though, if you thought about it in a practical sense, in a way like machine learning, you just run it through the assumptions and you just see how well it classifies. But I don't think it will classify the groups very well. And the other thing is you don't get any posterior probabilities, typicality, you get none of the other uh, very valuable kind of thick information you get when it meets those assumptions and you probably shouldn't use it to classify a new case. So, right. Yeah. Yeah, that and, would be and, yeah. Very uh, there's a, a linear combination of that type of variable that makes any sense that you could tease out what it might actually mean. It's essentially right. just you're comparing noise that will probably lead to a singularity error because the number of zeros <laughs> in it. At imagine. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's like I, I love this paper because it's tight, it's focused, uh, and it I think it introduces a really really good framework for our field at a moment in which we desperately need it to be mm. reinvestigating our firmly held beliefs and maybe even investigating some some newer opinions that have formed around the field and test their actual merit like scientists. And I think that's what you're showing. Like, this is how we can do it. And it's good. We can learn this about it. And we can have a much richer discussion about the problems that are inherent in this type of uh, research or and just affinity or ancestry or human variation, right? It's human variation will always be messy because there's no discreteness ever, really. That's so, right. We uh, should never expect there to be. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for noticing. I, I think we I really wanted to keep like the analytical components of it, of the paper, simple because I think 
the other parts, like the theory and the thought behind it are, like you said, thick. Like I reread the paper again today and uh, I've, it's dense in parts. And so you also don't need really complex science to, to support the ideas. No. Yeah. You don't need always the sexiest new analytic or whatever. You just need good foundational research and a good understanding of what you can and can't say on it and how we can use what we say to further engage the field. So I think it's a perfect encapsulation of that for sure. And that would be one of the points I wouldn't want missed in this article is that that the spirit and intent of this type of research in general at the most basic level. I think that's super important. Do either of you have any advice for current students who have an interest in studying human variation? You're going to hate this seriously considered genetics mm. as, as the, again, the data doesn't matter, right? So genetics, if you, is the way to go. And then also if you're interested in the consequences of human variation for people, consider biomarkers, um, whether, you know, they be things you can collect from the living like C-reactive protein or anything in the interleukin system, any of those kinds of things, or things like, oh, I don't know, I'll be self-promoting here and say pericomata or fluctuating asymmetry, those kinds of things, you know, let's, <laughs> let's, let's use, let's use cutting edge technologies to access new data to answer age old questions. Wow, that's a sign, but sound bite. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah, that was yeah, that was a, that was a good bite. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right, Steve, follow it up. Now that you just got the best sound bite, you got teed up. I cannot. Um, I can't do better than that sound bite. But I think I would say um, a more modest uh, recommendation is get as much information on groups and individuals that you're studying that you can. Avoid grandiose goals until you understand the data and its limits, because there are always limitations to your time, the data itself, the methods you can use. So you might want to even adjust your goal at the outset. And then, of course, you're going to have to adjust your conclusions, because by the time you get to the end, you're going to realize you've analyzed so many things and divvied up your data. Oh, we have this group, this, all this then you've got a sample size of about 15 in each, and then you can't come to the really outstanding generalized conclusions. So kind of, uh, you know, keep that in mind. It's an, it's, an, it's an exercise. Get through it. Understand things. Learn things all the time. Do. And uh, don't be limited by your advisor too much. <laughs> too much. <laughs> too much. Is there anything that you guys are working on you want to talk about, or are you just are you done? You're like two and a half hours is too long to talk to this loser. Quick plug in case anybody in your audience is not familiar with the New Mexico Decedent Image Database. Um, this is totally unrelated to the project that we've discussed, but if you're looking for a source of virtual osteology, this is the, I'm going to just say, the best one on the planet. It includes uh, full body CT scans of 15,242 individuals that are well-documented, some extraordinarily well-documented, some just a little documented. In addition to, it's it, these are decedent CTs, so that's why we can do whole bodies. And so if you're interested in the liver, that means you can study that too, or anything related to human anatomy. It's not limited to just osteology. And that website is nmdid.unm.edu. It's free to use. 
fairly straightforward, searchable, downloadable, please conduct research. Many thanks to doctors Edgar and Owsley for taking the time to chat. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I hope you did too. To find out more about Dr. Edgar's work at the Bridge Lab, the New Mexico Decedent Image Database, and the Orthodontics Case File System, check out the links provided in the episode description. Also there, you can find a link to Dr. Owsley's statsmachine.net to follow his work and get access to various software he's built. Thanks for listening. Be good.